interesting people, thought-provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. Sharon, thank you for coming on. This is an absolute honor. I'm so grateful for you being here. Well, thank you. It's a great delight to be with you. I figured we'd start things off with Miles Horton. Who is Miles Horton and why do you admire him so much? Uh, Miles Horton was the founder and uh, I guess director, we would say, of what was then known as the Highlander Folk School. Now I think it's known as the Highlander Center for Education or something like that. And he founded it in Tennessee. And it was really almost like a, a training ground for organizing. A lot of civil rights leaders were there. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was there. Rosa Parks was there. Um, and then as it evolves, people started going uh, f- like from West Virginia, who were really concerned with strip mining or, or different environmental causes. And so um, he was really right at the center of uh, a tremendous amount of activity as people were trying to explore, you know, ways of, of getting empowered with one another and a sense of community and going forth and trying to make this a better world. Yeah. I, I found so fascinating in, in your book, Real Change, how he had a mission and he was going against the law, the Jim Crow law for so long and how he was able to stay with the mission. How do you think that he was able to do that? And what issues today do you think that people will have to stay with for a long time before they actually see results, quote unquote? I think probably every issue. (laughs) It's like, it'd be hard to choose just one. Um, Well, I asked him, you know, the story I tell in the book is about a time he came up to Massachusetts and uh, he was here at the invitation of a friend of mine, and then the friend had to like, go to work or something, so I got to spend the day with Miles Horton. Um, and I asked him, we talked about meditation, which he was not really interested in, And uh, but he, I said, what do you do? Because, you know, just someone had made a film, um, You Gotta Move is the name of the film, and a documentary about him and about his work, which I had seen and I'd really been blown away by, and I talked about it in a retreat I was teaching and then someone came up to me and said, I'm the one who made the film. So that was really beautiful, you know? So anyway, I spent this day with miles and and we talked about meditation. And then I said, what do you do? What do you do? You must do something to be able to hang in there. And he said, well, I go sit outside and look at the mountains. Um, and, And I knew that, you know, in general, unless we just crash and burn, we, we're calling on something to help us get perspective or a bigger picture or keep on going. And I think, you know, the other like stories in that particular book um, cover a lot of people who spend a really long time needing to draw upon patience and uh, their own inner values and remember what their own North star is and what keeps them going. And because there's so many ups and downs. It's so fascinating how you might think of meditation as one thing, but 
And for him, he said he didn't meditate, but that is clearly an example of meditating and how even just like walking in the park or, or whatever it is for someone, it can be meditation. So I find that I've found that everywhere. Once I've been awakened to the power of meditation, it really is everywhere. But that I want to ask about there in the book and in life, it seems like there's so many problems. There's so many things that need changing, but there's also a real importance on focusing on yourself and focusing on creating the best in you so that you can present good to the world. How do you balance those two? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, for people who are very connected to um, wanting to change the world and the suffering of others, and uh, they often feel really kind of guilty, you know, about getting some rest, <laughs> you know, or, or getting replenished or thinking about resilience. But I think here we have to be a little realistic, you know, because, um, you know, so for example, like um, there's a distinction that's being made these days sometimes in science uh, and research between empathy and compassion. This is a little technical, but because of course we tend to use those words as identical, but they're really not. So empathy um, is that felt sense. It's like feeling into someone's situation and resonating with it. It's like there's a vibration in our body in response to seeing somebody's difficult situation. And um, we need that. And I think we see in the world, a lot of examples of a lack of empathy, you know, where people uh, just feel very distanced from someone else and, and they don't really feel into the situation, what, you know, that may be right in front of them. And, um, and it's a cold, cruel world when there's no empathy. It's like you can kick a table and that's one thing, but if you kick a person and you feel like you're kicking a table, that's a big problem, you know? And yeah. so, I, I mean, I see a lot of empathy trainings and things like that, which I think are terrific. But, you know, I've spent a lot of years in, in teaching, working first with caregivers, people we call caregivers, who either in their personal life, in their family, or in their professional life, or sometimes just in friendships, they're the kind of person who gives and has trouble receiving, something like that. And um you know, people in caregiving roles often give and give and give and give. And I think they have huge empathy. That's not a problem, but they're burning out for some other reason, you know? And so the compassion part is uh, sometimes defined as moving toward a situation of suffering, not into a situation of suffering to burn up yourself, but moving toward it to see if you can be of help. Not like, I am definitely going to take over and make everything okay by Thursday, you know. So um, I kind of moved, uh, you know, I was working a lot with caregivers. And then I, I, saw, I sort of thought, who do they remind me of? And then I thought, oh, activists, they're just the same way, you know, uh, doing kind of really often heroic work on, on the front lines of suffering with huge empathy and burning out. You know, so I think we have to learn to be realistic that, um, you know, we need some kind of resilience. We need to sustain ourselves. We need, as you were saying earlier, we need a long-term perspective, you know, like what's going to keep us going in the long run, not just like a burst of energy and then we crash. And, and that all points to having some tools 
uh, whatever they might be for you, you know, that, that will really help you be fortified. Yeah. So let's talk about those tools. What are some tools you would recommend to make sure while you're fighting a long battle, I don't know if battle is the right word, but you're, you're on a long-term mission. What tools can you use to sustain yourself on that mission? Well, for me, you know, it comes down to a lot of the skills of meditation. So that's learning how to center, uh, you know, and not kind of be leaning forward into the future all the time, but remembering to pause, like just take a breath, you know, and not only do we do that in formal meditation, but people describe practices like I write out the email and then before I press send, I take a few breaths and then I read it again. And I decide, is this actually the message that, that I want to be sending? Um, uh, pausing between meetings and just taking a few breaths. And that helps us realize, what do I really want to see come out of this meeting more than anything? Do I want to be seen as right? Do I want a resolution? Do I want to help somebody, like mentor them? Do I want to grind them into dust? You know, like, but we need that pause in order to, to be that self-aware. So the first is like centering. And the second skill uh, or set of tools has to do with mindfulness. And, and that has, um, it's like the ability to be with our experience more genuinely as it is, not adding a whole lot of stuff from the force of habit. So the very common thing would be we feel physical pain or we feel disappointment. We feel a heartache, and right away we start adding a future, an assumed future. What's it going to feel like tonight? What's it going to feel like tomorrow? What's it going to feel like next week? And and it's overwhelming, and we feel helpless, and you know it's too much. It's like we can deal with what's now directly and honestly, and often effectively, but we can't deal with the entire future right now. Um, or maybe we have some very difficult feelings coming up, and this has been a time of such huge loss and disruption and confusion. You know, I didn't expect to be here, like where I am right now. Um, and being able to be with those feelings and not blame yourself for them or feel like I've got to vanquish them and really let them unfold and have some compassion for yourself is really important. And another part of mindfulness I find is remembering to take in the joy, you know, because um there are uh, sites of wonder, you know, th there are things that happen every day, small things that can really help fortify us and, and fill us, but we disregard them. Either we are so distracted, we don't notice the good that's actually happening, or uh, we have such completely unrealistic standards of perfection, like nothing's ever good enough, or we feel guilty. I can't, you know, it's like, there's so much pain, there's so much suffering. How can I enjoy this cup of tea or something like that? It seems so selfish, but that goes back to, you know, that basic issue is like, we need something, you know, uh, to help keep us going. And and there are things that appear in anyone's life. And, um, you know, it's sort of like that um, comment that, Mr. Rogers' mother made, you know, which is kind of a cliche now, but it's really true, where I, I guess he was a child himself. He was, I guess, let's say nine years old and asked her how to um, 
bear with some tragedy or something he was he was reading about. And she said, look for the helpers. You have to look for the helpers. And sometimes we have to remember there is good in this world also. Um, and and that's not trying to cover over things, you know, or or pretend everything is glorious. It's uh, it's like filling in the picture so that we can actually hang in there through adversity in a better way. And and we have you know tools of connection. Like we feel so alone so much of the time, and especially now, often. But even not just especially now, like before the pandemic. Also, I, I kept reading about. Uh, epidemics of loneliness happening and and remembering that we're actually never alone. We feel alone sometimes, but but that's not the truth of things. That's not reality. And reinforcing that sense of connection to life and, and to others is something that happens through meditation. Why does many why do many people who practice meditation come away with the idea that we're all connected? You know, that's kind of a mystery. <laughs> I mean, um, because on the, to me, on the face of it, it looks like maybe the most solitary activity imaginable. Maybe you do it all alone. Maybe your eyes are closed. But part of what happens is like the reason we practice mindfulness is so we can see more clearly. And, you know, when let's say an emotion comes up and we hate it, we're pushing pushing it away right away. It's not going to be a lot of learning that goes on. Or when we kind of lunge into it, it takes us over and we're, you know, writing that email and pressing send before we know it. There's not going to be a lot of learning going on. So we're trying to establish a space where we can be with whatever comes up, but in a different way so we can see more clearly into it. And we see like some of those emotions as an example. There are layers and layers and layers and layers. You know, if you sit and look at anger, that means without judgment, you know. Um, you see, oh, it's not just one thing. There are moments of sadness, there are moments of fear. And almost always, I think, if we can do that, we will see some sense of helplessness at its core. And that, for me, that's my clue. Like, okay, take some small action, whatever it might be. Because um, the helplessness is like the worst feeling, you know, that's the most difficult feeling. And and we need to channel the energy of that in some way. But um, I wouldn't see that if I was just overcome by the state or if I was, I was trying to push it away. So we just develop insights and understanding and we see more clearly. And one of those insights is genuinely how connected we all are. It's not something you're trying to make yourself believe or forcing onto the issue it's just like part of what gets revealed it's like wow look at this and and we you can also bring it consciously into life like um when i would go into companies or organizations to teach i would always ask how many other people need to be doing their job well for you to do your job well because look at that we live in an interconnected universe in fact or the Vietnamese Zen teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, who would always hold up like something. Like, I think the last time I saw him was in New York City. He held up a sunflower, holds up a string bean or something. Like he held up a sunflower and he said, now look at all the non-sunflower elements in the sunflower. 
So you think about how did this grow, you know, the sun? And who prepared the soil? And what about the rainfall that nourished the sunflower and everything that affects the quality of the rainfall, which we now know is very widespread? Or in the case of the string bean, you know, it's like someone had to plant it and harvest it and transport it and prepare it and sell it to us or sell it to us so we could prepare it. And, you know, there's a lot of forms of life in that string bean. There are a lot of forms of life that enable us to have lunch, you know? And, and so you just begin to see the world more in that way. Have you ever looked at an animal and said to yourself, wow, that is me in some sense? Has that ever thought ever crossed your mind or have you connected with that in any way? Yeah. I mean, I think I have in a playful sort of way through the years. Yeah. Yeah. It was just something that struck me as I started doing my own journey is like everything around you in a sense is so related to you. And, and if you really go deep enough and think deep enough, it's like, that is you in a sense. So I don't know, just a, just an insight from nice. That's nice. Yeah. So one thing I want to talk to you about was the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> Here she is. <laughs> why, why is the Statue of Liberty so near and dear to your heart? Um, well, I grew up in New York City, you know, so she was always kind of around. <coughs> and um, it's it's been an evolving devotion <laughs> through the years. I do... I, this is not my only replica, I have to admit. I have many <laughs> different sizes, different materials. Um, you know, that um, example of compassion and welcome was always very strong for me. And her basic message is you belong. You have a home here. Even you, that no one else wants, even you can make a home here, which was just like brilliant compassion. But it was actually in doing research for um, real change that I realized where I wrote about her. I realized that uh, she's actually a woman on the move. She has like one, one foot halfway up. She's in mid stride. And that became even more relevant for me. Cause I thought, well, it's not like a passive welcome. You know, she's not like hanging back and saying, yeah, that's good. You're here. You know, she's, she's moving toward to embrace, to, uh, to give refuge to, to these beings who are just appearing. And, um, and I really, I really do love her. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You mentioned the compassion piece of it has always called to you. Were you always a compassionate person since the time you were young or was that something you developed throughout the years? Uh, I think it's something I developed throughout the years. I think, frankly, the suffering of my earlier life was so, uh, big that even when I went to India, which is when I was 18, um, the uh, context in which I learned meditation and the context in which it is so often taught really is about caring about others and, you know, things like that. But I didn't really care about anyone else because <laughs> I couldn't, you know, I just had some work to do. Um, kind of that was, that was, uh, preliminary before I could really develop some compassion for others. And, and of course, compassion for oneself figures in that too, because 
um, the more we judge ourselves, the more likely we are to judge others. And I mean, when judge, I mean, harshly judge, you know? And so uh, it was a process, but I think it was always very important for me um, to stay open and aware to the kinds of things people go through in life. Cause I was going through some of them. What came first, your compassionate, your compassion for other people or for yourself? I think it's um, not, you know, exactly linear like that. I think they, they both arose together and deepened together. Yeah. Do you, do you recall a moment when you were like, wow, I actually care about myself and, and or others? I think, you know, there were many moments, certainly in terms of caring about myself that were, um, and one of the things I say about meditation and most especially loving kindness meditation, which is a particular method where you're offering uh, phrases of, of care to yourself and to others, like, may you be safe, may you be happy, and, and also to oneself. And um when we opened up the Insight Meditation Society uh, here in Barry, Massachusetts in 1976, we had a month without programming. And so those of us who were here thought, oh, well, let's just meditate ourselves. We can do a retreat for a month. So I'd heard about this kind of meditation. I'd already been practicing for like four, uh, you know, for quite a number of years. And um I, uh, you know, heard there was a kind of technique called loving kindness and the way you do it is by repeating these phrases silently and, and so on. And um, you go in a sequence, like first you offer loving kindness to yourself and then others, and then finally all beings everywhere. And um, so I thought, okay, I've got a month, let me just do it. And uh, I spent a week doing loving kindness for myself and I felt absolutely nothing. And then something happened to somebody like in our larger community. So several of us had to suddenly leave the retreat and I had to leave the retreat. So I was upstairs in the center in one of the bathrooms getting ready to go. And I dropped this big jar of something on the tile floor, just like went down and it shattered. And I remember the first thought in my mind was, you are really a klutz, but I love you. And I thought, look at that. You know, you could have given me anything in the course of the week, and I could not have honestly said something was happening, but something was happening. And I think I say it all the time to people that, you know, we always look, let's say you meditate 15 minutes a day. We always look to that 15 minutes for the sign that we've made progress, that there's some results, but it's not going to be there. Maybe occasionally it is, but mostly it's going to be in your life. You know, the way you speak to yourself when you've made a mistake or how you are meeting a stranger or in a time of adversity, um, that's when it shows up. And, of course, that's when we need it. So that's a good thing. But it can be very frustrating if you're just saying, well, I still get sleepy or, you know, when I meditate, my mind still wanders or something. It's okay. <laughs> that that does seem to to hang a lot of people up, right? The idea that they're not doing it right. Um, and I'm sure you've heard that so many times over the years. I'm not doing this right. I'm not doing this right. 
What is your typical response to someone who says they're not doing meditation right? Uh, it, often to ask, what makes you think that? You know, because people do have different expectations and often they're kind of wild and uh, misconstrued, you know, like uh, the very common one would be, I can't stop thinking. I can't make my mind blank. I can't wipe out all thoughts. I can't only have beautiful thoughts. Um, there's really, really, you know, that's not what meditation is about in my understanding. It's not trying to abolish thinking. It's really changing our relationship to the thinking process and really everything that goes through. We don't want to get rid of thinking. We can't get rid of thinking, but we don't have to be swept up in every thought. We certainly don't have to leap to our feet because of a thought and type out an email and press send, you know, and then later on go, whoops, you know, like, what did I do? Um, you know, we want a different relationship to our thoughts and that we absolutely can, can do. And so most people I find are honestly really needlessly discouraged about meditation. And if they had either some reassurance or some, you know, better understanding, it wouldn't, wouldn't seem so hard. What makes a good meditation teacher? Uh, any number of things. I think, of course, a good motivation, you know, that, that's pretty important. And um, I'd say a body of knowledge. You know, it's easy to think, well, this stuff sounds so simple, you know, and uh, I've done this for, you know, a week and a half. I'll just teach. Uh, but I, I don't think that really serves the people. So I would look, you know, if I was looking for a teacher, I would look for uh, some real experience and, and having some sense of, of really the body of knowledge. And I'm sure what contributed to your body of knowledge was going to India at 18. And you mentioned in the book how you were fearful of doing that, fearful of going to India. And I'm curious, what frightened you the most about going to India and being there? I think everything frightened me. I mean, I was, I was 18. I was going to college in Buffalo, New York. Um, I'd grown up in New York City, and I skipped two grades, which is why I was so young. Um, I went to college when I was 16. And um, I'd never even been to California before. It, it was just like, and in those days, most people did not fly directly to India. We flew to Europe and then went overland by bus and train or, you know, some way to go through all those countries and everything was new and scary. And um, But there was something also by the time I got to India and that, actual um encounter i felt more at home you know than i had throughout the whole journey and so um i mean it was all everything you know like uh india's uh was um uh very intense it's like every you know the sights the smells the sounds uh it was it was like super intense and um, worked on its own rhythm. You know, this is of course a long time ago. This is fifty years ago, and it's uh, 
you know, there were no computers, there were no cell phones, and everything was uh, a little slow. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was just crazy for us, you know, from a Western point of view. Like, I have these friends who um, mailed a statue back to the States to themselves, and it literally took seven years to arrive. Oh, my God. You know, so things weren't always that slow, but it was like, it was not a, a tidally efficient system of anything. Why do you say that you felt at home? It was just a sense. It was a sensibility, you know, that um, uh, is, there was a lot of tremendous generosity of the people and um, uh, often, you know, being enfolded in some, kind of family situation and sometimes a very, very poor family, but they would just want to take care of you and feed you. And, uh, you know, there was a lot there that was very beautiful. How would you compare going to India and a 10 day silent meditation retreat? Well, it was extremely different, you know, but I did, I did those retreats in India, uh, over and over and over again. Um, but it's the same as like practicing in Burma in later years and uh, Nepal, although Burma was more like India in some ways and that loudspeakers would be blaring, you know. And sometimes in Burma, um, they'd be playing rock songs, but in Burmese and you'd be doing like walking meditation. You think, I know that song, but I don't, remember, I don't know any of these words. Like, you know, then you realize that's the Beach Boys or something, you know, it's like loud, loud, loud. Uh, construction and um, music blaring, loudspeakers blaring, and people have this image of probably an idyllic, you know, little peaceful oasis, but it wasn't like that at all. Hmm. Okay, so did you come back from India with the idea that meditation was what you're going to devote your life to, or was it a different progression than that? Uh, I thought the practice of meditation would be what I devoted my life to. I never really thought I'd be a teacher, but um, I came back twice actually, because I, I was there on an independent study program from the university. So I was supposed to go back in a year and I stayed in India longer than a year, uh, but I did go back to Buffalo and I did what I needed to do to get two years of independent study credit instead of one year. And then I went back to India to continue practicing and studying meditation. And so it was, uh, it was 1974 that I finally came back um, to the States, but I didn't think at the time it was final. I thought, oh, you know, I'll go back, I'll get a new visa, I'll do the things I need to do in the States. And then I'll come back to India for the entire rest of my life. And I went off to see one of my teachers, this woman named Deepama um, who lives in Calcutta. And I told her that I'd be going back uh, for a short little trip to the States and just to say goodbye and like get her blessing. And, and she said to me, um, when you go back, you'll be teaching. And I said, no, I won't. <laughs> she said, yes, you will. I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. So that was actually what happened. Of course, she was right and I was wrong. And I've gone back many times since, but it's always been you know, to study for a certain length of time, never with the idea that I was going to live there. I just got chills because how do you think she knew? 
Uh, she knew. <laughs> yeah. She knew a lot of things. Yeah, it's really it because you hear these stories all the time, right? Like of gurus or or teachers from India having foresight of the future, mm-hmm. and maybe it was foresight, maybe it was just intuition. What do you think it was? Uh, I think it was a combination because you know she, I kept saying no, I'm not going to do that. I couldn't fathom that I was capable of doing that. And then she said two things. She said. Uh, you really understand suffering. That's why you should teach. And uh, which was really the first time I'd ever thought about, you know, everything I'd been through in my childhood being kind of a value in some weird way, you know? Um, And then she said, you can do anything you want to do, which you're thinking you can't do it. That's going to stop you. And I really, I left her room. She lived up in the fourth floor, um, this building, we call it a tenement and, I walked down those stairs thinking, no, I won't. It's ridiculous. I'm not going to do that. And I came back to the States and his life unfolded. Of course, she was right and I was wrong. Why did you think of it as ridiculous? Well, I had uh, tremendous veneration for my own teachers. And I thought I was completely incapable of doing something that I held in such enormous esteem. Um, mm. That makes sense. And take us through the unfolding of you eventually becoming a teacher. What were the next steps to prove your teacher correct? Well, I had met uh, Joseph Goldstein at my first retreat, which was January of 1971. And he was already back. He'd come back maybe six months or something before I had. And he was in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, This is 1974 in the summer. And he was teaching. at Naropa Institute's first summer. They just opened their doors. And uh, Ramdas, who was there teaching, had also been at my first retreat in January of 1971. And we were all friends. And uh, Ramdas had run into Joseph in Berkeley before that summer began. And said he was teaching like this mega class, like a thousand people at Naropa. And he had these little subsections. So did Joseph want to come and teach like the meditation subsection for him? So Joseph said, yes. So we always credit Ramdas with giving Joseph his first job. And uh, so this is still the first summer session. And Joseph had a one bedroom apartment and Jack Cornfield lived down the hall. That's where we all met. And, um, I showed up with a group of friends maybe two weeks before the end of that first session, the first semester, sort of the summer. And at one point, I think nine of us moved into Joseph's one bedroom apartment. People were sleeping everywhere. And uh, Joseph was so popular that he was invited to stay on for the second summer session. And I stayed on with him. It was sort of like his teaching assistant. And um, then we got invited to lead a month-long retreat. So Joseph and I went and led this month-long retreat. And then, we, I mean, we really had nothing. We were just crashing on people's couches and their living rooms and stuff like that. And then uh, somebody else wrote a letter, and because this was also a long time ago. They wrote a letter and said, you know, 
would you like to come to Vancouver and teach a retreat? And so some combination of Joseph, Jack, and I, and a few other people in different combos, we would just respond to these invitations. And then when that retreat was over, we never knew if it'd be another retreat, but the letters kept coming. And, <laughs> you know, when we just kept teaching and teaching. And um, I think there was somebody whose house we were often staying in. And I think in some kind of self-defense to get us out of his way, he said, you know, I have a rental, I have another house, I have a rental property down near Santa Cruz, California, in this town called Felton. Why don't you go stay there for a while? So we moved there and uh, we opened it up the house, I don't know, maybe like three extra bedrooms or something. We opened it up as a retreat center. And we said to people, um, if you want to come, we'll feed you, you know, we'll take care of you. You can do a retreat. And somebody came through who was writing a book and wanted that kind of situation. And he said, you know, I know. He said, why don't you start a real retreat center? Like, it could be like a sacred site in this country. It could be a repository for the kind of energy people generate when they come together for this purpose and doesn't need to dissipate. He said, I know exactly the people who can help you. They're all in Massachusetts. And he was right. So um, we connected and began looking for a place and finally found what is now the Insight Meditation Society. It was a Catholic novitiate when we bought it and uh, we moved in in 1976. When you first started teaching those first few times you were doing it, did you have a level of trepidation or imposter syndrome because you had held your teachers, your other teachers in such high esteem? Uh, with certain, um, in certain ways, I was still really young. I was 21. I was younger than almost everybody else, you know, <laughs> who I was teaching. And that felt weird and awkward. And, you know, I didn't have that kind of life experience. All I'd ever done was go to India. Um, and I was absolutely petrified of pub public speaking. It was impossible for me. And I could relate with some anxiety, but I could relate one-on-one -on -one with people and try to help them because I had such profound belief in the meditation, you know, um, I couldn't speak. I couldn't just give a talk. It was like, so that first retreat, Joseph and I taught was a month long retreat and he had to speak the way we do it is there's one like formal talk every day, usually at night. So we had to give 30 talks in a row. Cause I just couldn't. And, and people were going up and yelling at him and saying, why won't you let her have a voice? Why won't you let her speak? And he said, I'd love a night off. Go talk to her. You know, and I just couldn't do it. I was panicked. I thought, well, what if I sit, you know, and I'm speaking and my mind goes totally blank. I'm just going to be sitting there and everyone's going to know. And then I remembered. Um, so this is before the story I told earlier about being in Barry and dropping the jar. I remembered there was a practice called loving kindness and it had a guided meditation. So I thought, well, maybe I could give a talk on that because if my mind goes totally blank, maybe I could just start doing the guided meditation. No one will notice that I, you know, lost my train of thought. And uh, 
So I, that was the only thing I could talk about for a long time. And upstairs here, I have all these cassette tapes because they're all cassettes of me giving basically one talk, which was the loving kindness talk. Um, and then one day it was like, I realized in a way it was all about loving kindness and that it was all about connection. That's why people were there. They didn't expect perfection from me, you know, or uh, they really just wanted to connect and, and feel good about their practice and get some inspiration. And so from then on, I could give a talk. How crazy is it to you that, at one point, you were petrified to speak to, I don't know, a room full of people. And now your voice has been heard by millions. I know. Have you bizarre. ever considered that? I don't think millions, but I think quite a number of people. But yes, I know. Like when we were, you know, talking just for a few minutes before, like uh, once I was in, I was at actually some uh, Dalai Lama lectures in California. And <laughs> this whole group of us went out for lunch, you know, in, that, in our short little lunch break and we're just like in this Mexican restaurant and someone at the next table looks over at me and says, Sharon, because you heard my voice, <laughs> you know, or standing in wow. an acupuncturist's office. Someone was checking out and I was checking in and they said, hello. And she said, Are you? you know, so it's really very funny, you know, that it's pretty widespread. Yeah. You bring up the Dalai Lama and in the book you mentioned about how what he said about 9-11 impacted you so much. And it was just four words. He said, about 9-11, it happened. Why did that impact you so greatly? Strange, isn't it? Because, <laughs> I mean, I knew it happened. I was never a denier, you know. So it wasn't on that level. But there's something about, you know, such intense suffering where I think we have a habit of kind of skirting around it and, you know, um, thinking about it, but not really just it happened, you know, not that complete open-hearted acknowledgement. Yes, that's true. Uh, which I think, I think that is really the basis for um, not only personal growth and understanding, but a more effective path for trying to make a difference in the world. It's just like, yes, this is true. And usually we embellish things so much, you know, with um, whatever, you know, it might be uh, too much interpretation or too much elaboration so that we're not actually just feeling like, yes, this, this happened. Um, or, you know, we avoid it some other way, but it doesn't look like avoidance. But when you actually look at it, it is avoidance. And, and so just to sit there with it and just say, oh, yeah, it's true, uh, made me realize that I had sort of been flitting around it in some way prior to that. That's what meditation seems to do for me, is it forces me to confront the issues and things that I've been putting off in my mind and makes me look at them somewhat objectively. Obviously, you're never going to get completely objective, but brings awareness to that issue that I've been, I've been putting away. And when he said that, and when, when you, I read that, I was like, wow, that's exactly what he did with a huge event that had, for New Yorkers, had the really their heart and the suffering and real, real suffering. So I thought that was really important. And, and I really hope that people can take that with them. 
So you want to put some things just hurt on your gravestone. Why? I don't have, I have that on a cup, but I don't have it in this room. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Um, my friends these days are making me mugs and cups with things I often say on them. So, uh, and one of them is some things just hurt. Uh, because I feel like um, we can be so unfair to ourselves and the world can be so unfair to us in terms of what we should be feeling. And uh, these days as often, it's almost a kind of new age pressure uh, that says, well, if you had the right attitude, it wouldn't hurt. Or if you weren't resisting, it wouldn't hurt. Or if your thinking process was better or clearer, it wouldn't hurt. And I think some things just hurt. So that's why I formulated it, you know, because I thought it's so unjust. It's so unfair. Like what we do with that hurt um, is different, you know, and that's where we're actually empowered. Like we don't need extra suffering. You know, maybe something hurts, but then we add this whole dollop of isolation to it. Like it's just me. Well, that we don't need because first of all, it's untrue. And, and it just exacerbates and increases the suffering tremendously. Or maybe we do that kind of future projection. Maybe that's our add-on. Or maybe we're ashamed of what we're feeling, and that's our add-on. Or, you know, we can have all kinds of weird and distorted relationships to a painful feeling. Um, and we need to work to relinquish the hold of some of those add-ons. But that doesn't mean things never hurt. You know, look at what people go through. You know, and and in some ways, I, I probably encounter more people who feel distressed at what they're feeling uh, than the other, you know, than the opposite. Like, I should feel this. I should be beyond this. I should have grown beyond this. I've been in therapy forever. Why do I still feel this? Or I've been meditating forever. Why, you know, I'm so bad. I'm so terrible. Like I once, uh, like before the pandemic, I was talking to this woman and she was really in that state, you know, I should be in a better place. I don't know why I'm so bad off. I've learned so much and I can't put it into practice. And I'm so overreactive. And, and so I said to her, I'd like you to make me a list of everything you've been through this last year. And she chose not to make the list, but to draw it out, you know? So we sat and looked at the drawing together and I said, I just want you to take a look at this, you know, like, my house burnt down. My cat died. My, you know, brother. And I said, you have been through a lot. This is very difficult. And if we can start from there, then we can, you know, work in different ways to, to keep moving, to keep growing. Why do you think the practice of writing it out or drawing it out is so effective? Well, I mean, I think she just wasn't allowing herself to recognize that you know, I, I once read somewhere that um, trauma is a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. And sometimes I don't think we give enough credence to how abnormal a situation can get. You know, like I have been here since March 14th, 2020. I did not plan on that. In fact, when I first came up here, I'm, I have a house here and the retreat center and it was wonderful. And I have a, a really little apartment in New York and I decided to come up here 
for two weeks, you know, and then I came up with my snow boots and then it was summer, you know, and then, and then now it's summer again, you know, and, uh, you know, we go through a lot, every single one of us and I'm mean, some more than others, of course, tragically, but um, we don't ever stop often, you know, for many of us and just give credence to that. It is incredible what happens when you just put your thoughts on the page or just write it out or just take a minute to give yourself reflection because oh, so often we're going to the future, going to the past, or but when we're forced to put it out there, we're forced to be in this moment for what it is, mm-hmm. which is a beautiful thing. When you have this great quote that I want talk to you about you mentioned anger before and you said when you strip away the fear from anger you have insight and energy which together take the form of courage when i read that i was like whoa (laughs) whoa 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 so i'm gonna read it again when you strip away the fear from anger you have insight and energy which together take the form of courage that's powerful Sharon, when did you come up with that? How did that, how did that insight get to you? I only have one way of developing insight, (laughs) which is meditating, really. Um, Well, it's a little bit like, as a more poetic way of saying what I was saying before that if I sit, let's say I sit and look at my anger. So that means, first of all, a pivot, because when we have a strong emotion of any kind, uh, we're usually even entranced by the object or the story. It's like if you if you're really angry at somebody, you know, you think about what they said, you think about what they did, you think about your vengeful plan, and it's very rare that we kind of pivot our attention as though to say, "What is anger? What does it feel like? Not why is it here and what am I going to do about it, but what is this?" And that's the first thing we do, and then we have to let go of some of the add-ons. I shouldn't feel this, you know, or whatever it might be. You see those things come up in your mind. You see if you can just relinquish them and let them go and let them go and let them go. So then you're left with like, what does it feel like in my body? And you just pay attention to whatever you discover. And what's sort of like the movie of anger, if you're watching just the unfolding of the different feelings, that's where you find the fear and the sadness and where I find the helplessness. And I think we basically do. And that is my call to action once I feel the helplessness, because um, that's a pretty corrosive feeling. And we will often do many things uh, to not have to feel that. And um, it's not that anger is bad or wrong. It can be self-destructive, tremendously self-destructive if we harbor it and nurse it. Um it can also, in terms of action, lead to some very clumsy, um, unthought through actions. You know, we're trying to retaliate. We're trying to make the helplessness go away. Um, but when we're in the super grip on something like that, it's not, it's like you don't see options. You don't have creativity or you don't even remember. It's like right now. This is an exercise I often suggest right now. Just remember a time you were really, really angry at yourself and just bring it up. 
Now, that's not a time where, generally speaking, we also think, you know what? There were five great things I did that same morning that I said that stupid thing. It's like those five great things wiped out. Right. So we don't have the information that is going to paint a more complete picture. It's like, I am that idiot. And I always say stupid things. And that's all that I ever do. And I'm so bad. I'm so terrible. So none of that helps effective action. You know, like, uh, first of all, we get exhausted by the harangue and, and demoralized. Like, I can't do anything right. Um, we have incomplete information because we've just jettisoned a whole bunch of stuff that happened that same morning. That's why we don't see options. We feel trapped. Um, we don't have room for creativity. It's not actually the best basis for taking action. And so we want to be able to utilize it skillfully and, and then really take some action. You mentioned creativity, and I'm curious, where do you think creativity comes from? I think it comes from a kind of spaciousness in, in our minds. Like it's really what I was just describing, like in that spaciousness, um, things become more apparent or uh, a part of creativity, I think is it's almost like relationship, like how one thing relates to the next and often in unforeseen ways. You know, but in our perception, it's like suddenly they're connected. Things are related. And uh, for me as a writer, that happens most often when I'm meditating. And not because I'm trying to work it out, you know, like how how do I make that chapter go there? Uh, It just comes to me because there's a little more space within which it can arise. Yeah. It's like from the sense of nothingness comes everything yeah that that's how i feel about creativity is that also true from your perspective yeah and that's a beautiful way of saying it thank you one question i have for you sharon is how much should we focus on the news because in one sense i feel it's really important to be informed about what's going on in the world but in another like we were talking about in the beginning of this conversation, it's like the more you pay attention, the more I feel sucked into it. So what is the answer? I think everyone has their own answer, you know, but I think in general, probably some better boundaries would be good, you know, and uh, I have friends who don't agree with me on that. And I just, I don't, I'm not following that or, you know, but uh Because I think, and here too, I think it's a place where self-knowledge is really, really good. I think what many of us find is that we're not just becoming aware, we're getting obsessed, you know? And uh, I don't know if you know the phrase doom scrolling. I didn't used to know what it was, you know? Like, I didn't know what it was. And somebody interviewed me for the New York Times about doom scrolling. And I had to say, what is that? And... And he said, you know, I got your name from a colleague of yours who recommended you. And, uh, and in fact, I did doom scrolling, <laughs> you know. So once he told me what it was, I thought, you know, because you're just going through like all these um, tweets or whatever, you know, form of, of media you take in. But what you don't realize at the time is that it's often the same story again and again 
and again and again and again. And you're just getting overwrought. You're not learning anything new. You're just doing it again and again and again. And um, so what I said to him, you know, the journalist was like, there are just these various things. Like I realized, you know, I'm, I'm getting overwhelmed. I need to stop or I need to have better boundaries to begin with. And And then when the article came out, I saw that I was in there and my colleague was not. So then. Uh, I, I talked to him not too long ago and I said, did you recommend me? Cause you knew I did it and you don't do it. <laughs> and she said, no, I was just too busy. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think we really do need to pay attention because it gets, uh, it does get overwhelming and really quite toxic. And that's different than just being informed. Mm. How do you recognize that in yourself? Well, I think you just get really in touch, first of all, with what's happening in your body. You feel the tension. You feel the kind of panic sometimes, you know, like, uh, and and those become very recognizable signals. Like, whoa, it was a little too far, you know, hour seven, (laughs) like picking up my phone and staring at it. Yeah, it's it's a wild time. And I feel like in some sense that the news is trying to make us fearful, but another, I said to myself, Oh my God, there's information that I want to know. So balancing that is, is always tricky, but I appreciate your insight on, on doom scrolling. Um, Sharon, this has been a lot of fun and I really appreciate you taking the time. Is there anything you'd like to mention before we go to a close, anything that we haven't covered that you would like to leave us with some final parting words? This has been quite lovely and there's nothing coming into my mind. Don't do scroll if you can help it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's a great message. Thank you, Sharon, for, for your time, your wisdom, and sharing your story. Where can people find more from you? Uh, my website is just SharonSalzberg.com. And uh, I have a podcast myself called The Meta Hour, M-E-T-T-A, and Uh, You can find all that information on the website. Awesome. And we'll link those below. Thank you again, Sharon, for your time. Thank you.